0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored, episode 243. Today, we are talking to one of the workers who recently organized the very first union at REI, the would be progressive sports and outdoor equipment retailer. But first, the news. The Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Education Support Professionals are still on strike, now in their third week. You heard last episode about the reasons of the strike from some of the people who are striking, and if you missed that show, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. Talks right now appear to have stalled, while the union and the district say they have agreed on class size caps, social workers in each school, and measures to protect and to recruit teachers of color. Pay and bonuses remain sticking points both for the ESP and teacher chapters of the union. For ESPs, the union is still pushing for a $35,000 a year starting wage and says the district's last, best, and final offer does not meet that mark. For teachers, the union has lowered its ask for ongoing pay raises and shifted to a request for one-time bonuses, which it says can come from the government's one-time COVID funding, which you heard about in that last episode. Meanwhile, students and parents have rallied in support of the teachers, including a group of high school students who occupied the Davis Center, the administration building for the Minneapolis Public Schools. One of the students told independent media organization Unicorn Riot, quote, We're here because we're tired of MPS putting this idea into the media's head that the teachers are taking advantage of the students and using us to get their demands. We're tired of MPS treating our teachers as like greedy, narcissistic people, when in reality they're the basis of our communities and we rely on them for nearly everything. And they deserve better than what they're currently being given and what they're currently being offered on the union and MPS's strike table, end quote. We'll put a link to the Unicorn Riot video at the Descent website, org slash belabored. Meanwhile, the food service workers in Minneapolis public schools, who had also taken a very strong strike vote, did come to a tentative agreement with the district that will be voted on in early April. The agreement includes, according to the union, a, quote, historic wage increase of dollar an hour in the first year, $0.75 cents an hour in the second year, with additional steps and longevity increases for long-term employees, with workers seeing wage increases up to 24% over the life of the contract, retroactive pay for all of the gains, $2,000 cash payments in year two, an additional $1,000 in year three, and improvements on life insurance, long-term disability, vacation accrual, retirement security, and personal days. We will continue to keep up with the strike in Minneapolis. And if you are in Minneapolis or a teacher or a student or a parent, we want to hear from you. Belabored at DissentMagazine.org. When the Fight for 15 movement
2: first emerged over a decade ago, it seemed like a pretty radical goal. $15 an hour as the minimum wage. And that was seen as a pretty major breakthrough when low-wage workers across the country in different states and localities started getting that $15 minimum wage. But if you've ever tried actually living on $15 an hour, you know that it can be extremely difficult to make ends meet on just about $31,000 a year. According to a new report by Oxfam, nearly one in three workers in the U.S. makes less than $15 an hour. That's about 52 million people altogether. The portion of the workforce earning under $15 an hour varies widely by geography, race, and gender. Not surprisingly, workers of color and women are disproportionately affected. Using census survey data, the analysis found that, quote, While 26% of self-identified white workers earn under $15 per hour, 47% of self-identified black people in the workforce make less than $15 an hour. And while 40% of self identified women in the workforce make less than $15 an hour, 25% of self identified working men do. Even more stark, 50% of self identified women of color in the workforce, or about 14.7 million, make less than $15 an hour. And in 25 states, at least 60% of working women of color earn under $15. The report also finds that well over half of self-identified single parents, about 57.5% or 11.2 million people, make less than $15 an hour. States with lower minimum wages, particularly the southern states, have the greatest portion of workers stuck below $15. In Mississippi, for example, nearly half of all workers, as well as 63% of black workers and 70% of women workers, are earning under $15 an hour. All this contributes to the country's massive and growing income gap between the rich and the poor, between people of color and white workers. And between men and women, especially because the minimum wage, which has been stagnant for over a decade, has lost a lot of its value over time due to inflation. And yes, it may be totally legal to effectively pay your workers even less than the federal minimum wage, that's $7.25 an hour, thanks to the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. Essentially, employees are only responsible for paying about $2.13 an hour under federal law, on the assumption that the worker will end up earning the minimum wage overall when you factor in their tips. Of course, many workers never make up the difference in tips and are left with a giant hole in their pockets. There have been some attempts to reform this policy in recent years, with some states getting rid of the sub-minimum wage tier so that tipped workers have the same minimum wage as other workers regardless of their earnings through tips. In California, both tipped and non-tipped workers have a state minimum wage of $15 an hour. Still, that leaves about 4 million workers in the restaurant industry struggling with this massive legal loophole of the sub-minimum wage. While states and cities have moved far ahead of the federal government in terms of establishing a $15 hourly minimum wage for regular workers, there's also been regression at the local level, with some states passing so-called minimum wage preemption laws, which essentially prevent local governments from passing a minimum wage that is higher than the state's minimum wage. That's basically invalidating the higher local minimum wages after they've been passed because they think poor people just don't deserve that much money. The report concludes that the federal government should do more to institute an actual living wage, and that would be way more than $15 an hour in a lot of cases. It could do this through procurement policies, which ensure that employers that contract with government agencies pay their workers a living wage, which is usually determined by the local cost of living and how much it costs for a family to meet their basic needs. The government could also invest massively in a key low-wage industry, childcare. Oxfam argues that subsidizing both child care workers' wages as well as childcare costs for families would both improve workers' pay and ensure that quality childcare is affordable for working parents. So until all working parents can earn a family supporting wage, we can
1: at least ensure that their kids will get the care that they need while they're out working. This week in Britain, dramatic scenes ensued when workers on ferries owned by the company P&O, itself owned by Dubai Ports World, were fired with no notice, and in some cases escorted off the ships where they live and work by officers with handcuffs. The workers were to be replaced by less secure and much cheaper agency workers. One of those fired workers told the Guardian, quote, "We were escorted one by one to our cabins. There were two guards with me as I packed up years and years worth of gear." I wasn't even allowed to say goodbye to the crew, which becomes like your family. It was disgusting, brutal, shocking. We were just escorted to a shuttle bus. I went home to my daughter, dazed and astonished. When you've worked on the same ship for many years like I had, there's a pride and a wealth of knowledge that builds up. Pride in your ship. As a crew, you learn these little tricks of the trade, how the water supply, sewage systems, engines work. Now all of that knowledge is gone. End quote. The same worker noted that being fired in this job is also being evicted because the ships are literally where they live a lot of the time. So regular listeners to the show know that I've been doing an ongoing and intermittent series on the supply chain, and so we have a long interview planned for next episode with an expert on Dubai ports, world, and seafarer labor, Lala Khalili, professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London, and the author of a truly incredible book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, which is available from Verso. But since P&O were in the news this week, we decided to bring you a short conversation about what's happening there this episode. And since we're multitaskers here at Belabored, we also spoke with Lala about the ongoing university strikes in Britain and the particular situation at the university where she works. University strikes have been ongoing in Britain for the past few years, and the pandemic has only heightened their urgency as it has sped up attacks on academic workers' conditions and retaliation against those who take action. Here's Lala Khalili. Can you tell our listeners sort of what happened with piano fairies? Yeah,
0: this is a longer story, and i 'm going to tell you a quite a long story because I actually it ties in into some of the events that have happened in the u s as well so Dubai Ports World uh, was a company established in Dubai. It's largely owned by the Dubai ruling family, um, uh, although it has sort of the, the apparatuses and shape of a kind of a private company, but it isn't. It's essentially a, um, a ruling family affair in Dubai, um, which manages uh, Jabal Ali Port, which is the, usually the ninth or 10th largest port in the world on the list of top 10 con- container ports. And it also manages loads of different ports in other parts of the world. Uh, it expa- As it has expanded, it has also gobbled up different kinds of companies um, in, in a lot of different um, areas and one of the companies that it gobbled up was piano now piano to your listeners they probably recognize the name but if they don't it stands for peninsula and oriental and it was essentially a colonial shipping company the peninsula here was the Iberian Peninsula the oriental was eastern Mediterranean originally the company was established to compete with the French in the Mediterranean but eventually it became an extremely Extremely important um, mode of communication with the empire in India, in part because it received these very lucrative um, post, uh, postal uh, contracts with the with the British imperial government. So, uh, piano um, survived in a variety of different guises after this after the end of colonialism, and in two thousand and five or six, I believe, uh, Dubai Ports World bought it up. At the time, New York Times actually wrote an extraordinary lament saying they couldn't believe that the British had so easily <laughs> given up a sinew of empire. That sinew of empire was quite an interesting statement. But the reason the Dubai Ports World had done that uh, was because they actually wanted to be able to take over six ports that were managed by P&O, in the United States, and those six ports were, um, I believe, um, in New York, New Jersey, Miami, and a few others. And of course, you, you, um, your listeners may remember that at the time there was enormous opposition to this, um, to, to, the, uh, to uh, Dubai, to uh, Ports World taking over these ports. And what is really interesting about it, and I wish. That the strategy that unions had chosen had been different at the time, because I think that would have made a difference now to what is happening today. Because the strategy that the U.S. unions chose was to focus on the fact that Dubai Ports World was an Arab company, not on the fact that it was a terrible, terrible treater of labor everywhere that it went. So by focusing on its Arabness, they turned it into a race, essentially a racist Islamophobic. These guys are terrorists. They're going to come and take over the ports, et cetera. And they got a huge amount of support for that. And George Bush and uh, Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer and a number of other figures of uh, major political figures of the time through their... Heft behind the unions, actually, surprisingly, and so Dubai Ports World quietly sold off those uh, its its control over those six ports, which it had bought through PNO, to AIG, which then went out of business.
1: <laughs> then so, we know about AIG. Right?
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. So. If at that point, if at that moment, the unions had made it about labor, I think it would have given us a really good handle, a really good um, uh, mobilizing factor, a really good, something to, to grab onto when we are trying to organize around Dubai Ports World's um, travesties here in Europe, but they didn't. So Dubai Ports World, in the interim, has taken over a whole bunch of different ports. They have taken over, for example, um, The, uh, a major terminal in, um, in. Rotterdam, called Rotterdam Gateway. Uh, it is now one of the largest con- container terminals there. And they have also taken over a port in the Thames estuary just um, up the river uh, or down the river from London uh, called London Gateway. And when they took over London Gateway, they actually refused to recognize um, any unions to, uh, to enter a collective bargaining with. And our laws were so incredibly weak that there could be no regulatory way to force them into that recognition. There was actually, at the time, enormous amounts of political mobilization in the world, including, for example, in Durban. Dockers were refusing to unload ships that were coming from London Gateway um, in order to show solidarity with the dockers um, at um, in, in, in that port. Eventually... Um, the union took um, Dubai Ports World to, to, to court and forced them to enter a collective bargaining agreement with them. But it has always been like pulling teeth. Now, in in the interim, Dubai Ports World has also received other kinds of goodies and subsidies from the Tory government, including this new post-Brexit thing called free ports, which essentially create free zones where there are very few regulations. It's extremely lax on labor, on environmental stuff on taxes there are subsidies on starting businesses it's supposed to kick kick in jobs but it has absolutely no effect whatsoever on jobs it's essentially a handout to businesses and likely because of because the tories are also not only just mega capitalists but also fundamentally corrupt to all of their quranis so they have also gotten this goodies and of course that has emboldened them and so they they uh have decided that they have noted, in fact, that the labor laws in this country do not protect our workers. And, uh, November, in November of last year, labor, um, a labor MP tried to get a law passed through the parliament that would prevent something called fire and hire, which would be to fire all workers and then to hire them as agency workers, which would, of course, um, reduce their protection. Um, at the time it was done so because there was a major strike Going on by uh, in British Gas. British Gas was trying to do the same thing. Um, and uh, the Tories, of course, voted that down. Um, also, a, three, a few years back, three or four years back, uh, very quietly, um, a Tory Minister of uh, Transport had uh, signed a regulation in which they removed the requirement for a company that is whose ships are not flagged to Britain to. Uh, they removed the requirement for them to report anything to the government, um, and and the incompetence of this Tory government is such that their, the subsequent minister of transport knew uh, nor minister of business knew nothing about this. I mean, can you imagine this? Uh, so 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 the combination on the one hand of this fire and hire law essentially being legal. Um, through a kind of uh, not being able to pass a law to ban it and through that regulatory change within the context of flags of convenience has translated into, uh, uh o essentially saying piano dubai ports world essentially saying um the pension we cannot meet our requirements for the pensions of the workers that are working for us uh even though that the amount that they that could be paid into that pension is less than what dubai ports world just paid in order to sponsor a golf tour here in europe yeah, something like they paid something like two hundred million um, pounds to sponsor a golf tour, and they actually the pension hall is something like one hundred forty million pounds or something, and so, um, so and so they laid off all the British workers. Interestingly, we found out immediately that neither French nor the Dutch workers of piano had been laid off, precisely because the labor laws in those countries protect the workers. We also found the same thing to be true when Dubai Ports World took over uh, Rotterdam Gateway. Where, again, they immediately recognized the bargaining, collective bargaining agreements with unions there, again, because the laws that had passed there protected and demanded such things. So where we are at is that we are now in a situation where p can have these ferries that are flagged to other countries, flags of convenience, which I will explain in a moment if you'd like me to, um which uh and because it because these flags of convenience uh have no such requirements um in terms of who is higher than what uh, floor there is to the pay that they can receive. They can essentially hire anybody who's willing to work for that minimal amount. And so the contractual, um, the contractual amounts that uh, P&O is now offering some of these seafarers from other parts of the world uh, translate into uh, pay that doesn't even reach minimum wage, British minimum wage. And so, so it's it's extraordinary that they've been able to get away with this. But it's a confluence of uh, unfettered capitalism, a corrupt and incompetent Tory government, and, and of course, extremely weak, um, labor laws, which have been written precisely to the detriment of unions and to, to the detriment of workers.
1: So some members of the current government have made some noises that they want to um, support these workers now and probably along the same lines of British jobs for British workers that it was in the US. But do they have any options or have they sort of written themselves laws that don't give them any options other than sternly wagging their fingers?
0: they absolutely cannot uh, at the moment they cannot do anything and that is why we are now seeing a shift from we're supporting everything we're doing everything to support these workers uh, to we'll do everything we can to retrain these workers for new jobs and so yeah. uh, which which I actually don't even foresee how they're going to do that but um, so so they yes there are maritime legal um, uh, people have come out immediately and have said in fact what they have done is legal within the confines of the- Extremely anti union, anti worker uh, labor laws that we have in this country.
1: Yeah. And that the, the Tories gutting everything sort of takes us to the next subject that I wanted to talk to you about, which is um, what's going on at the university where you teach and um, how that connects to the ongoing strike wave at universities in Britain.
0: So let's start with the ongoing strike waves at universities in Britain. Um, over the course of the last, um, I would say, 20 years, a number of major changes have happened to universities um, in Britain that actually started under New Labour, um, so Blair and Brown, and has continued in a very dramatic fashion um, once the Tories came to power or came to power in coalition with the Lib Dems. So actually, all the major parties are have their hands bloodied in the blood of universities. The thing that started under New Labour was the introduction of um, university fees. Um, uh, Fees, uh, universities here were mostly public. They um, did not, they received block grants for teaching and research from the government, and um, therefore students did not, you know, pay a fee, um, which which is an extraordinarily equalising policy so the introduction of fees actually even the small fees uh, which the new labour introduced which was about 3,000 quid a year um, was still quite a a significant amount Um, and it really did change the complexion of the university because it it, it went hand in hand with um, uh, with withdrawing grants for various other things um, with pushing actually universities at one point under the department of business uh, which which kind of uh, yeah. reveals what <laughs> policy makers were thinking right. about universities essentially as a sausage factory for producing good little worker bees. Um, and, uh, and then when the coalition power, when the coalition government came to power, the liberal liberal Democrats and the Tories, um, they raised the fees to more than 9,000, which is what it is at now and that, and then introduced student loans. And of course the, the whole entire apparatus, neoliberal apparatus, which essentially produces a, an end- debted subject that is looking to pay that debt back but in order to pay that debt back they cannot experiment they cannot um, step outside their comfort zone they have to take a job that pays they cannot um you know that essentially produces a kind of a pipeline into the world of work um what has gone hand in hand with that has of course also been a neoliberalization of education removal of certain caps on number of recruitments which means that now universities are also competing um with each other for, um, thing, for, for student numbers. Um, and that. The translation of that is that, um, universities now have shifted from sort of, uh, putting focus on education for the students that they have to, um, marketing, uh, for more students to come to their university rather than others. And of course, they think that the way that they can market this is by saying, look at these shiny new buildings we've got. So essentially, it's the whole problem that Americans also face, which is that university has been translated, universities have been changed into property portfolios with an education arm attached, but with a slightly different kind of complexion, because we don't, uh, with the exception of a few of our bigger universities like Oxford or Cambridge, we don't have the same kind of endowment um, kind of problematic that the US universities, private universities um, have. So um, so, so all of these changes have come to a head and has meant that um, over the course of the last 20 years, we've also seen a dramatic um, change in our working conditions um, in in, um, the, the academic Working conditions. Now, the, the thing that your um, colleagues, uh, uh, my colleagues in the US might find interesting is that I'm a full professor and actually my salary is less than the starting salary of my assistant professor colleagues in some of the uh, equivalent type of universities in the US. Um, and this is, we, we agreed to this kind of a pay, uh, much, much lower at the, at the sort of the bottom rung, um, in part because we were promised a, uh, reasonable pension, a defined benefit pension, uh, a pension that at the very end of it, it's, uh, we knew how much we would get and it would be survivable. And so in a way, um, we looked at the kind of, we looked at the pension as a sort of a deferred income rather than as solely a kind of an, additional benefit to our pay. But of course the deferred benefit has gone away. Uh, or a significant proportion of it has gone away. Um, and the pensions are being changed, um, in, in a lot of different ways. They're making more of it defined contribution, which is again more familiar to your, um, uh, to your listeners in the US. But in addition to that, I mean, there's so many things that is going on. In addition, in addition to all of that, um, they are talking about inflation caps, which of course inflation is going out the roof, but they're putting a sort of an inflation cap on, uh, both, um, uh, our pay and various other things. And on top of that, the valuation for our pension pot was done in the point at the start of the uh, COVID pandemic when the stock markets were at the lowest possible. And so the pensions were set to be failing. And therefore, the duty of the pension um, uh, regulator was to force the pension to make sure that it wasn't going to fail. And so the numbers that were calculated at the beginning of the pandemic, which um, saw, for example, zero growth. Growth ever in the stock market ever again since, you know, March of t- 2020 has translated into an extremely unbalanced um, uh, sort of pay uh, addition in uh, our pension pay. So essentially what that translates into is our pay is going to go uh, lower. And our pensions also going to become smaller. I am sorry, our pay is going to, our, our monthly pay is going to go lower. Our pension contributions are going to be higher, and our um, we're going to also have a smaller pension. In addition to that, I mean, there's so many things. <laughs> We've also got the four fights, which is fights around precarity, work led, gender pay gap, and racial pay gap, which are dramatic in this country. Um, the average uh, gender pay gap for, is, is, for example, eighteen percent. Um, in in, uh, in in universities in Britain, and it's more shocking even for women of color, where it's thirty four percent. And so so, it, so so that's horrendous. Our workloads are through the roof, um, and of course, uh, every time we complain, uh, you know, we're thrown technological solutions that are that are absolutely that in fact actually increase um, our workload. And so a few years back, we started with the strikes around pensions, and now the strikes around four fights are happening. On top of all of this, Queen Mary and a number of other universities have decided to kind of bully their striking members by saying that if they don't make up the sessions that they lost during the strike, i.e. during the time that they weren't being paid, if they didn't make it up on top of their normal workload, that they were going to have 100% of their other salary, not their strike pay, but other salary deducted because of partial performance. And so that's what's been going on with Queen Mary. Um, we have tried to, reason with our employers about this, um, we and other universities, and in a lot of the other universities, they have actually withdrawn this threat. At Queen Mary, we balloted on top of the national ballot. We've now got a local ballot going, which got a dramatic yes. And so unless our management withdraw their um, threats, we are going to uh, go on strike. We've got the national strike next week, and then we've got the Queen Mary strike the subsequent two weeks. So, So that's what going on with us. And, and what is interesting about this is that, of course, this is coming at a time when the Tories are absolutely gutting any kind of labor regis- labour legislation there are, sometimes by fiat and sometimes by negligence. And so, um, so, so we're finding a very unsympathetic government. We're finding um, largely unsympathetic employers, not largely, entirely unsympathetic employers association. And we're finding a pension um, company, a pension organization that seems to to be beholden to the employers rather than to us, who are their actual and real members. And so things are a bit dire, if you ask me.
1: That was Lala Khalili, author of Sinews of War and Trade, and tune in next episode for an extended conversation with her about shipping, oil, strikes, decolonization, and much, much more.
2: About a year ago, a mass shooting left eight people dead at several spas in the Atlanta area, six of whom were women of Asian descent. The incident put a national spotlight on massage parlors and the way their workers are often extremely vulnerable to many forms of violence. Many employ mostly women and immigrants to do low-wage, grueling, and often stigmatized work, which sometimes but not always intersects with sex work. Typically, the primary fear among many massage workers is not a mass shooting incident, but actually a raid by local police. In New York City, massage parlors, which are largely concentrated in Asian immigrant communities and where workers are mostly Asian immigrants, are frequently targeted by law enforcement on the pretext of rooting out unlicensed massage workers. Often people end up getting arrested and jailed on various charges related to human trafficking or simply not having the right authorization for their work. New legislation has been proposed in the state legislature to basically decriminalize unlicensed massage work to help protect massage workers from police raids, harassment, and abuse, which advocates say is systematically targeting working-class Asian immigrant women who have virtually no way to defend their labor or civil rights. I spoke with Jared Trujillo of the New York Civil Liberties Union and Esther Cow of Red Canary Song, an advocacy group focused on massage workers as well as sex workers in New York City, about workers in the massage industry and why this bill is needed. Can you just explain the rationale behind the legislation? So what I'll say is that, you know, this bill
3: was just introduced recently, uh, but it it truly has been long overdue uh, just for several reasons. You know, this is uh, truly a workers' rights bill. um, And for far too much of New York's history, unlicensed massage has been one of the only professions that um, is criminalized. or, or All unlicensed professions are theoretically criminalized. But it is one of the only unlicensed professions in New York uh, where people are actually arrested, they're prosecuted, they have their property taken, and sometimes they're even charged with felonies. You know, I'm an attorney, and I know of prosecutors even uh, who don't renew their licenses on time and, and, and other attorneys that don't renew their licenses on time. People aren't arresting attorneys for practicing without a license, people aren't arresting doctors or chiropractors or almost any of the other professions in New York uh, are practicing without a license. It is, these arrests are really concentrated um, in um, a licensed massage and one or two other professions. And, um, and that's not a mistake. Uh, you know, 95% of the people that are arrested under the statute are Asian women. Um, a large percentage of those folks are non-citizens. Um, and it's, you know, it, the rest and the criminal record are bad in and of, them, in and of themselves, but uh, the fact that uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment from law enforcement is pretty frequent uh, with this, uh, the fact that people often have their money taken, and the fact that people are often charged with e-felonies, uh, which is punishable by up to four years in prison, uh, are all problems of this statute. So um, that that's, I guess, a really long-winded way of saying, you know, this bill was just recently introduced, uh, but you know, it, it's this isn't a new issue. Um, of course, groups like Red Canary, where Esther's part of, um, have really been advocating um on this issue for a really long time. And it's uh now it's it's just the time when uh, you know, we finally got around to drafting the bill, to fighting for the bill, uh to getting the, int- the bill introduced and hopefully getting the bill passed in the very near future.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, um, I want to add that, you know, in the past decade, um, Asian massage work, Asian businesses have been conflated with human trafficking. And um, in the outreach that Reconery does, um, we see that, like, this demographic is criminalized on multiple fronts, right? We have this conflation between the work itself and um, them being trafficking victims. Um, If they don't get them on that charge, they'll try to um, get them on prostitution charges. If they don't get them on prostitution charges, they'll um, target these women for unlicensed uh, massages um, or being undocumented. Um, And so this bill is really like one tool um, among many tools that we're trying to use to um, lift the penalties um, from uh, these women for being criminalized just to try to make ends meet and um, make a living um,
2: in in this country. Yeah. Um, Do you have a sense of, uh, like, what is responsible for this, like, sort of uh, rather outsized um, focus, I guess, on, um, you know, this particular kind of unlicensed business? Is it just that, you know, they want to make more arrests and so this is, uh, you know, these are sort of easy targets um, for arresting a lot of people at once? Or um, is there some other uh, incentive system working on the part of the police?
5: Yeah, um, I, I think there's sort of like, that's sort of twofold. I think on one hand, like, yes, I do think that they are going after the lowest hanging fruit, um, And uh, we often see that, you know, these arrests and sweeps, Generally happen um, after uh, the city has a certain um, they uh, they want to gentrify a specific area in Chinatown. So uh, these trafficking raids uh, and these arrests happen uh, when you know the city is working with like big development companies and they want to clean up, say, like 40th Street um, and build new high rises there, and then these arrests would um, occur uh, pretty soon after. And it works like a it, it works like a clockwork yeah, and just
3: to add on to that, you know, Esther's one hundred percent right. Um, and a lot of it, too, is just that these arrests are they're just ways to do things uh, that sound popular to some people if you don't really peel back the onion and if you don't really look too critically. So, uh, as Esther just noted, um a lot of these arrests happen during raids. um and uh, the premise of a lot of these raids is that, oh, we're saving trafficking victims.'re, you know, we are, uh, going in and we're rescuing people. If you actually want to rescue someone, if you actually want to help someone who's being trafficked, you don't give them a criminal record. You know, you don't traffic them through criminal court. Um, you don't say that, like, their freedom is contingent upon them talking to police, because these are a lot of people that, uh, that don't feel comfortable talking to police for several different reasons. Um, and even if they did, ultimately, you know, even in raids where they are allegedly going in to help people that are survivors of trafficking, they're still arresting them. And having an arrest record only makes you more vulnerable. It makes it more difficult for you to find other work. It makes it more difficult for you to find housing, access to education, everything else. Um, And, you know, so it's, it's just the way that these, uh, these offenses are prosecuted and the fact that they're prosecuted is just you know, deeply offensive and deeply uh, untypical to any sort of notions of, of equality.
5: Yeah, and um, uh, I realize, I, I'm not sure, you know, how much you know about, um, like, massage businesses and massage workers, Like I realize I should have explained sort of this demographic. Um, so um, in Flushing Queens, where um, RCS does the majority of our reach to uh, Korean and, Chin- and Chinese massage workers, um, this conflation between like licensed massage work and licensed, unlicensed massage work, sex work, and trafficking is a big issue. Uh, mainly because uh, when we do our research, we realize like a lot of these women um, oftentimes are doing like massage work, but they can't afford to. Take the, um, take the licensing classes or they don't have the language capabilities and don't have access to education to take licensing classes. Um, and, you know, oftentimes they've done professional uh, massages, um, uh, you know, back in their home country, immigrated here and have all of these um, really like economic uh, barriers to to doing this, um, you know, with, with a license. Uh, and, you know, as rent increases or COVID happens or, you know, uh, threats of violence um, after Atlanta shooting increased, um, sometimes they would, you know, participate in uh, forms of sexualized labor um, to say, make rent for that month or pay off, um, you know, extra debt that they've accrued because they have uh, a decrease in clients um, due to the divestment in Chinatowns after COVID. Uh, But they don't see themselves as sex workers necessarily as an identity um, and this is where like that complication between like all of these categories, uh, come in. I and mean, when we do our outreach, like we don't, um, we don't, uh, provide aid based off of what they self, I, uh, we, we provide aid regardless of, um, you know, whether they're a massage worker or they're a sex worker or if they're like in between those identifications.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, given this uh, conflation between those categories and the fact that, you know, falling into one category will make you vulnerable to being criminalized, like, I guess, can you talk more broadly about um, efforts at uh, decriminalizing sex work as well um, that are happening in in the legislature? And um, although this pertains uh, to unlicensed massage businesses, um, would an effort to decriminalize sex work um, also help make these businesses and the people who work there safer as well?
5: Yeah, there is a larger package of um, bills, from what I understand, to decriminalize sex work, Um, and
2: it's really important to
5: include the decriminalization of a licensed massage in that, and that currently is not included, um, because even if sex work is decriminalized, again, some of these women are not, like, necessarily doing sex work or... um, they they don't identify as sex workers, um, but they are practicing massage that is unlicensed, and those barriers are very different. Um, and because like this, you know this uh, this business is a little bit more fluid, and um, lifting criminal penalties will um, really clarify some of those um, uh, uh, some of that like opacity, and really be able to um, help us do do the outreach and provide the aid like necessary to um, to, to these women. Yeah.
3: And, and so, you know, certainly efforts to decriminalize sex work really matter. Um, you know, they, as, as Esther noted, uh, these are, they're distinguishable and not everyone that works in a massage parlor is a sex worker. Um, also it's important to note that some of the people that are actually wrapped up into these unlicensed massage charges are people that aren't even practicing massage. Um, so it's people that are like cashiers, uh, it's people that are janitors, it's people that, you know, just happen to be in, uh, in the business. Sometimes even people that are licensed to practice massage, they're just practicing, you know, in, in the same facility as someone who's not licensed. And so, um, I, I do want to say like there is a distinction, but certainly it would matter, uh, because, you know, the, the overlap between people that are, are practicing a licensed massage and the people that are doing sex work is, is not zero. Um, and, uh, the broader decrim efforts are really, you know, it's, they're about workers' rights and recognizing uh, that people doing jobs that people have done, you know, uh, for, for as long as time should it be criminalized or trying to feed their families. But it's also a, it's also a criminal legal system uh, fight. It, it's recognizing that, you know, if you look at people like Yang Song, um, if you look at just so many people that are subjected to police violence and, and, and sexual violence and everything else. From, uh, from criminalization, it's making sure those people don't suffer from that. It's also you know, a workplace safety issue and recognizing that when professions are criminalized and when you create a black market for something, you actually make something more dangerous. And so like with the criminalization of sex work, it's harder to, let's say that if you have a date, one, it's easier to get a dangerous client and that it's harder to get redress if you have a more dangerous client because of criminalization. And the same thing certainly exists for massage work, and it, you know, it, and even just dealing with issues of wage theft. If you are in a criminalized profession, you have almost no redress if, you know, if you're not paid, if your tips are taken, if you know you suffer any of these inequities. And so, just like with the bro- broader efforts to decriminalize sex work, we are, are hoping that the decriminalization of massage work uh, will, you know, make people's jobs safer. Um, will reduce police violence and will ultimately, you know, uh, enable people to get redress for any of their grievances or any sort of of, of harm that they might in- encounter while working.
2: That was Jared Trujillo of the New York Civil Liberties Union and Esther Kao of Red Canary Song. Retail has historically been one of the hardest sectors to organize in, with its high turnover and precarious workforce and big employers that can invest huge amounts of time and money in crushing union drives. So in this episode, we're looking at one recent example of how retail workers in New York City are bucking that trend. The workers at REI, a retail chain and consumer co-op that specializes in outdoor gear and sportswear, recently voted overwhelmingly to form a union at one of the flagship stores in downtown Manhattan's Soho neighborhood. Like a typical large corporation, REI tried to deter workers from organizing with heaps of anti-union propaganda, while also trying to frame itself as a friendly employer who just wants the best for its workers. The union-busting underscored the irony that REI, as a co-op, prides itself on its progressive values and community spirit when it comes to issues like climate change and promoting racial equity. When it comes to labor issues, however, it's a different story. We spoke to Stephen Buckley, a retail sales specialist, member of the REI Union Soho Organizing Committee, and now a member of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, or RWDSU. We talked about how the store's workers dealt with the anti-union resistance and how they managed to turn the crisis of the pandemic into an organizing opportunity.
4: I started at REI in September of last year, so I've only been there about six months, which in my department as is a, is a veteran staff member, there's a, there's a joke in, our, in the clothing team that the average tenure is uh, three months. Um, but yeah, I started in September and I think I was um, approached by a coworker, like like a lot of folks are during the quiet moments of organizing, you know, a handful of weeks into the job. And I was immediately on board just because, you know, working conditions at any job where you had to be in person every single day have just been dreadful the past two years. Like I... I, I and I don't think it's just retail, but I think the broader, like if you have to work in a frontline job, it has just been a, a miserable existence. You're chronically short-staffed. You don't have basic materials to do your job, sometimes due to supply chain shortages, but a lot of times just due to like the flagrant cost cutting that has kind of ruled the day during COVID. You know, what appealed to me about it was like, We just need a voice in our job. We need to be able to self-advocate for safe working conditions. It was also about, you know, two weeks into two or three weeks into my job that like one of my coworkers got their foot run over by a pallet jack. And like that is a reality of working retailers. Like you can get significantly injured. Like I think people forget that we have to move 500 pound pallets of product as part of our jobs. Um, and so I think for me, you know, it was that plus working through a pandemic where we were not really being well supported and just, just experiencing the, the misery of very demanding, aggressive customers and, and, wanting to be able to have a support structure in place to you know advance our needs and address both like our economic concerns for sure but also like have a formalized voice in the workplace because otherwise you like you know like it's cliche but like if you're not at the table you're on the menu and like we all felt like we were on the menu at work yeah
2: um can you talk a little bit about uh, REI as a workplace and as a company. Um, It's, you know, quite a unique company. It's it's set up (laughs) as a... As a consumer co op, as I understand. And I actually grew up right down the street from the store where you work. Um, so I definitely remember passing it. And there's definitely like, you know, like a vibe. Like there's, it's just, um, I mean, it was, I think it was there even before Soho became like a very trendy place, but um, definitely like attracts a certain clientele. And I guess there's sort of like a subculture around it. Can you just explain what REI does and why it's maybe like a little bit different from your typical retail workplace?
4: Yeah, so REI is is very unique. Um, I think the Soho store is even unique within REI. I don't. I don't want to say it's the only store like it, but um, so REI, like you mentioned, is a is a consumer or a, or a buyers co op, as it were, um, which means that technically we are owned by our co op members. We. Are a mostly outdoors-focused retailer, uh, pretty much exclusively. So we sell everything from bikes and skis to all of the clothing you could need to do pretty much anything in the outdoors, from skiing down a mountain to going camping, to riding in a triathlon. Or if you're in, the, if you're a consumer at the Soho store, just surviving New York frigid winters. Um, but as you know, a, a co-op that has, you know, a a, a professed core set of values, it attracts both on the staff side and the consumer side, a more progressive, um, oftentimes left-leaning workforce and clientele. It is a, it's a company that people feel good to shop at because they're like, I know that REI does the right thing on environmental issues. Um, you know, they, like, we publicly advocate and actually encourage our members to engage around a bunch of different issues from protecting public lands to, um, you know, increasing equity and diversity in the outdoors. So, like, REI as a, as a co-op, really at least outwardly facing has really tried to do a lot of the right things to improve society through life outdoors and we are all part of that mission as employees of the co-op what that means is that we take our work incredibly seriously Um, people come to REI instead of ordering things on Amazon or you Know wherever they can get it cheapest because they know there's going to be knowledgeable employees that help them figure out what they need, and that's everything from like I've outfitted, I work in the clothing department, I've outfitted people to go to Antarctica numerous times or to through hike the AT or to just go skiing for the first time, you know, and like help them really figure out what their needs are. Um, you know, people come expecting a certain level of care and quality that we really love to provide. Um, on top of they come because they know that they're supporting a business that is not beholden to wall street that reinvests its profits like employees have a profit sharing arrangement um that we get once a year and that's all employees like even me as a, as a sales associate uh, you know i get a, a share of the company profits at the end of the, at, at the you know when when members get their dividends or rewards on their um on their purchases so it's it's, it's a really beautiful kind of place. And it's really incredible to have a, a work environment where you're all kind of bought in on the idea of a life outdoors and bought in on a culture of, of trying to reinvest and improve society writ large. Um, that's kind of like what the vibe is supposed to be. When I when I
2: Googled REI Union, the first thing that came up was the website that they created to like to uh, educate uh, their employees about the consequences of unionization. From what I've read, it seems like pretty standard um, anti union uh, propaganda type stuff. So, did that very sort of conventional corporate response surprise you at all when you know when you heard it coming from the the head of a of a company that purports to be? you know, very progressive and to adhere to certain, like, collective values and stuff?
4: I was not surprised at all. Um, personally, I was disappointed. Um, we knew, we knew at minimum they weren't going to voluntarily recognize the union, even though we asked for it repeatedly. Um, and we, we also knew we could win the vote. So it didn't, it didn't matter that they wouldn't um, respect that request. Um, I wasn't surprised because, you know, I this is the same company that when I had COVID, I had to fight with them to get my legally required paid family leave. You know, this is the same this is the same company that makes part time workers even if they're scheduled for full time hours uh, wait a year to get health insurance. This is the same company that has a three minute late policy, which uh, that's your window is three minutes, and and you know we live in New York City where. For the past two years, ten to twenty percent of trains just didn't run. Like, like that's only just started to sort of get better. Um, and so, this is a company that, that for all of its purported values and, and a lot of them they do live up to, um, is not often supportive enough of employee needs and really understanding what it takes to to make the all of those things possible like I don't think our CEO Eric arts understands the reality that to sell the products that we do it requires us getting screened at threatened harassed by customers that they don't really do much about um, and I I thought the union busting podcast you know from uh, from the land of the coastal Salish people was, was really well put as far as where this company is failing in its values. Like doing a land acknowledgement in your union busting podcast is just the most on brand for REI thing ever. Like it it just does not like they're trying to do the right thing and just choosing to take a left turn when it comes to what workers actually need in their stores. It's disheartening because, you know, we didn't, we didn't want this to be a campaign about REI. You know, we didn't want this to be a campaign about their hypocrisy. We wanted this campaign to be about how do we have rights and dignity and respect in the workplace? How can we come, how can we, set forth a contract that is mutually decided by you know workers and management that addresses the needs we have and allows us to feel like we're really we're truly living up to the values that we purport to have as as a co-op and we just couldn't do that because our ceo decided that they didn't want to do that and that kind of really it it wasn't surprising, but it was disheartening, and I think for a lot of people. And I think one of the reasons why we won by such a huge landslide was people realized in a very specific and deep way that regardless of the values we have as a company, if you're going to take, if you're going to try to take power back from HQ, they're going to fight you tooth and nail. And they felt that through the union busting campaign. And they decided, you know what? I'm going to live my values, even though I love this place to work. And I I love working at REI. Like, I I genuinely love my job. I love helping customers. I I love unloading trucks and pulling 500-pound pallets full of bikes and, and skis. Like, I love it. But at the same time, you know, we need to have a really... Improved relationship with the way we make decisions in the store and as a company and there needs to be employee input on every single policy that comes out of HQ and the only way we're ever going to get that in a real tangible way is with a union.
2: Yeah. So at the end of the day, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, uh, they you know HQ is going to behave like a retail employer. So when it became clear that you were facing that level of resistance, did it come down to the store level? Were were I mean, did you have uh, uh, any workers facing any direct retaliation or any kind of
4: intimidation on the job? For sure, um, and some of this, um, I will be intentionally broad to not um you know identify any of the people who are clearly retaliated against, you know, just for their privacy and so they don't get further retaliated against. But we definitely felt a a harsh presence. Um HQ sent at any given time there was at three there was a, at least three executive level people in the store. And it was a rotating cast of characters. Um, there were more staying at a hotel down the street. And just for clarity, you can't find a hotel in Soho for less than like three or $400 a night. So they were literally choosing to like spend a week of our pay a night for one of these HQ employees, these executive level folks to come in and target and bully us. This is this includes, like, they sent the chief commercial officer to the store, like, you know, who's an ex-Amazon executive. Like this, you know, so it was, the, it was the standard playbook, right? It was send a lot of managers in, send HQ staff in, have our managers pulled out of the store to sit through union-busting trainings, Um, They didn't say that's where they went, but they just happened to go to meetings at the hotel with the HQ people and attorneys, which like I read that as, oh, you're getting trained in union busting. Great. Um, But like people were pulled into uh, into multiple meetings, like hour long, like being berated about how a union was against their own interests and isn't going to fix any of the things they need fixed. People were, you know, targeted over things that were never really enforced. Like we have a vague cell phone policy, but it's not really like, so like if you're not on the phone, uh, but you're just like checking a text or something like that, that's not, that's not normally a huge issue. So long as you're like not ignoring customers. But like our store is three floors and a manager came downstairs, came from downstairs all the way to the three floors up to to target an employee uh, because they were watching the camera and saw that this person was just checking a text and they walked up and told them like, you need to get off the phone, right? And there was no customers in in this person's department. So it's like petty things like that on top of, you know, Massive threats to like people were in, in individual meetings were threatened with losing a lot, losing health care for their families. We've had that was one of the big things is like people who are parents who had, you know, children that require that, you know, that rely on their health insurance, which like we actually have a decent health insurance plan if you can get on it. But you were really told, like, well, the union's going to come in and make you take the union health insurance plan and you're not going to be able to take your, take care of your kids. There's nothing we could do about it. Like, and also some more, you know, vicious and cruel threats. Um, And, and it just really was, it was sad. You know, I I was, I was as someone who was a very vocal public facing, um, union supporter, like they mostly left me alone with a lot of those things. But like I had one of the HR directors corner me in a fitting room and and argue with me about an HR complaint I filed against my manager uh, for 40 minutes while I was working the fitting room on a very busy day. That's when the HR representative thought it was a great idea to have a very personal conversation just to like make me uncomfortable you know, I was pulled into numerous one-on-ones where they would argue with you about kind of everything and also pretend to want to address everything, but not do anything about it. Um, and so it's just very like, you know, on top of captive audience meetings, which went well into the evening. I, I was in multiple that went past 10 PM um, because I worked the night shift, but like, that's not a time to have a, a conversation about things. That's the time to be berated. And that's just what they did is they just berated us and told us why we're wrong and why we're petty and, and why we've been misled. Like they really leaned into this idea that we were too stupid to know better um, and too, like we weren't intelligent enough to know anything because they kept saying, you were you were promised things that the union can't deliver. And like the union didn't promise anything but a chance to improve our working conditions. And at the end of the day, like, you know, like we chose to work with RWDSU, but RWDSU is not the union. The workers at REI SoHo are, and we collectively decide on all of our, you know, needs. Like we, we elect the bargaining committee. There are account- they're co-workers and they're accountable to us as workers. Like we vote on our contracts. Like it's 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 us. It's it's not some third party lunacy that, that they tried to make it out. And so luckily we didn't see a lot of we didn't see anybody get terminated during the drive for any union related things. Um they found like nitpicky things to harass people about, but I think the part of the reason they didn't fire anybody is they're so short staffed they couldn't afford to. Like, I think if they thought they could run the store and fire a bunch of us, they would. But they know that they can't because in the month of December, like thirty people quit, and we're not a like we're not a big enough store that that doesn't hurt.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to to hear you how could this is a place where you you know overall you love working, but it sounds like at least <laughs> during the union drive they tried to make your days at work feel kind of hellish.
4: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of union busting at every, everywhere. It's, it's, they want you to feel uncomfortable and, and, and feel miserable when you come to work so that you burn out and that you won't keep fighting. Um, it's intentional and we knew it. And we were openly talking about like, they are intentionally making this worse than it needs to be so that people blame the union for making things bad. And they kept talking about how the union is divisive and union supporters are divisive. Um, They made like, they, they accused us of doxing somebody with no proof and never did an investigation into who was doxed. Um, Nobody was pulled into an HR like investigatory interview or anything about that. They told us that we were harassing and bullying people into wearing union. Yes. Buttons on our vests and I was just like what like like literally no anybody who wanted a button just just asked for it and they were given one like it wasn't but they kept talking about these things as if they were happening basically to sow confusion and you know they were doing this two and three times a day
2: yeah uh sounds like a kind of a massive gaslighting operation oh yeah
4: it was Um, it's so gaslighty. It was like, it was really like, we used to joke about it, that it was like um, one of the things that I remember texting my coworkers is like ready to get, you know, ready for union busting by gaslight, like just straight up, like this is just what it is. It's, it's, it's sad because they, I think they thought we would fall for it. And it was almost like, are you not embarrassed? Like, You make a quarter million dollars a year, half a million dollars a year, and you want to, for funsies, you're going to gaslight workers, like making just above the minimum wage? Like, are you serious?
2: And throughout this time, you, I imagine, I mean, the organizers must have been working to sort of inoculate people and help them cope with this, or at least, you know, navigate the confusion that they were trying to sow, right?
4: Absolutely. And I think, you know, like some of the specifics of how they did that. You know, or are, are between me and my coworkers, just to be totally frank. But, you know, every, I'm going to be honest, I cried after one of the captive audience meetings. Like I cried in my coworkers' arms because it was so horrible. Um, it really hurt me personally, and it hurt a lot of our coworkers. And our job was before we went public, we really focused a lot of energy on making sure people understood what we expected HQ to do and their response to be. And, you know, the first time that, you know, they ran an anti-union meeting in a, in our morning huddles, we have huddles before the store opens uh, pretty much in all of the REIs, just like, you know, here's the new product that came in, here's who's out in this department, maybe give them some coverage, that kind of stuff. Um, and like I remember getting the text from one of my coworkers. I wasn't at the morning huddle and uh, they were just like, they literally must've like, you know, like read the, the like inoculation plan that you gave us. Cause they said all of the things you said they would say, cause their playbook is tired. Like the union busting playbook is tired and it's tired because it works because like gaslighting and manipulation and, you know, misinformation works. They keep doing it. But like, we really tried to make sure people knew beforehand and then throughout, like, you know, there was a number of times where, where after a really bad meeting, you know, we would talk to, you know, coworkers you're close with one on one and just be like, Hey, are you okay? Like the number of hey are you okay conversations that I had during this drive um, is really startling and I think it made us closer as 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 coworkers and, and as people who again, like we want the store to be successful. Like we want the co-op to be successful, but also like we want to make sure that our coworkers can feel good about coming to work. And a lot of people did not feel good about coming to work. And all of the blame was placed on me and my coworkers who wanted to fight for a union and, and the third party of RWDSU. Like it was just like the unions making it this way as, as I'm berating you. Like, it was just very, like, so clearly manipulative and and horrible. And it's like, we're retail workers. We know what gaslighting is. Like, we get gaslit by customers every day.
2: I saw um, on social media that actually the public-facing element of the union-busting campaign actually got some backlash from REI. Customers and co-op members, I guess. Have you received any feedback from REI? Are they are they called co-op members or customers? I don't know, <laughs> but um, folks who shop at REI.
4: Oh yeah, I mean, and, and that was one of the best parts about the campaign was a just because we're a, a, a consumer co-op, non-members shop at the store just the same. They just don't have the same added benefits, but like regular customers as well as members had a lot to say about the public facing campaign and about how they were disappointed in this company for doing what they were doing people called the store um to like talk to the managers Uh, like hundreds of people wrote to the board also like if you look at their replies even now on social media like we won three weeks ago and there's still people commenting like That backpack be a lot better if you weren't union busting. Like, that's basically the attitude of a lot of their customers. And they don't seem to understand that that's not going to go away. I think they thought that this is a normal corporate American environment where, like, you can behave in that way and and people are going to forget, and people are not forgetting. But also like we had so much support like the number of customers that saw my union yes button that were like we're here for you we're supporting you we love you like we had people place orders for pickup like buy online pick up in store under the uh, under the name Union yes and like that stuff really just like that that means so much um, because you feel so alone you feel like you're on an island when they are treating you the way they are. Like you're on an island with all your coworkers, but you're still on an island. And just that that support from our customer base meant so, so much. And like, you know, being in New York, it's a very union-dense place. So like even just people being like, you know, I'm a union member too, and I really love what you're doing here. And if you ever need anything, you know, reach out to so-and-so at my, like, at my union, and we'll come out and support you all. Like that stuff happened, and it meant a lot. And so, for me, like, I just hope that the co op can listen to those people because they care what members think. Because at the end of the day, like, the entirety, like, yes, all of the things about we believe in collectivism and all that, their business model is predicated on members continuing to shop there every year. Like, that's what our business is. And if they're upset, and they feel like they want to shop elsewhere, that is a problem for us continuing to grow and expand the co-op, which is the the goal. Like, being honest, we're a company. We are expanding. They're opening multiple stores this year. There's going to be a new distribution center opening next year to support growing business.
2: Yeah. I don't know if the co-op the consumer co-op is structured in such a way that uh, members have any input in anything that the company actually does or decides. But in terms of how you want your union to operate at REI, are there any particular aspects of the business or or practices that you'd like to see changed with uh, input from the workers going forward?
4: I mean, absolutely. And some of this is like, some of this is a little tricky as we're like doing bargaining preps, I want to like, not, you know, jump the gun. I think for me, like the the big thing about our business model that I would personally like to see change is I think we actually have to have a real plan in place and and policies and support in place to address issues as they arise. Um, Because that's the thing, REI says that they do that, but they don't. And I don't think customers know that like, when there's a problem you are very much on your own because kind of each store is its own little fiefdom right and and so i think like that culture of let these stores do whatever they want to people and let them have their own autonomy and we don't ask any questions is what needs to change um and part of forcing that change again is is that we are going to actively engage Um, not just at the store level because they're not going to let our local managers negotiate the contract. Um, But like, we're going to have more input. And, And the other thing I'll say is like, there's that problem, but then there is the corporate directives that just go out to everyone and everyone must follow them no matter what, like the whole late policy is a thing out of HQ, which does not factor into any, any existence of New York city living. Like, if you are three minutes and one second late, you can technically be fired for that. Like they're supposed to follow a progressive discipline thing, but, and I mentioned that not as a thing that like I have a specific plan to address, but like is a thing that is really problematic. Um, And like, yes, there are supposed, there is some flexibility in that and all that kind of stuff, but it's management's discretion. Right. Like, they can choose to fire you for for violating the late policy um, without following progressive discipline. And then that's something that, like, is unfortunate and then comes out of a culture of wanting deep control over the workforce.
2: Yeah, I've I've been reporting on retail um, in New York for years um, and the labor issues therein, are and, and I know that there have been unionization efforts at many retail locations that have ultimately not panned out. What would you like others working in retail in a city like New York to know about how you managed to navigate this whole process and maybe some words of encouragement, perhaps?
4: I think, you know, first and foremost... We were successful and we were very successful, right? But it was so much work and it took so much out of the entirety of the workforce that I understand in a deep level why union drives fail as often as they do, because like we did everything right. And I still felt very shaky at a lot of times. Right. The other thing is, is like, especially right now, there is a national shortage of people willing to work retail jobs. And, you know, there's no time like 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 Target has decided that they need to raise wages significantly. Trader Joe's has. Walmart even has. Even Amazon, you know, started having signing bonuses to get to pe- people to work in Amazon warehouses because they've realized nobody wants to do these miserable damn jobs and get COVID and deal with the nonsense and the brutality that's put forth on their bodies. Right. So there's no time like right now to organize. And like, if we look at, you know, one of the things that buoyed my spirit so much was, you know, and I, part of this was, I was literally sick with COVID when, when the vote count in Buffalo happened at Starbucks. But like, I watched that vote count live and I was sending it to like, I was sending the results to people at work to be like, they won, they prove we can do it. We can do it. Like, you know, these people are just as precarious as we are. They're, they're dealing with the same type of fake progressive employer as we are. We can win a union. This proof, this is proof of concept. And I think, you know, I hope that people look at REI at Soho. Yes. We're specialized retail. Yeah. We're, you know, on the higher end of retail. Yes, we're in New York City. Yes, all of these things. But like our employer had five different union busting lawyers listed on the NLRB filings, right? And we still won with 86% of the vote with like 95% turnout, right? We, You can do this they they can't come after you like they used to be able to. They can't harass and target you the way they used to be able to because there's literally no one there to replace you. For every three people that quit, one person starts at, at our store. And that's true across a lot of retail. Like If you go into a retail store right now, it's hard to track down a staff member pretty much everywhere because no one wants to do these jobs. And you're going to leave that job for a slightly better one like for an extra dollar an hour people will just quit their job and rei is no exception to that and most and that, i don't want to say that's true in every region of the country i know like you know that's a specific example here in new york but like we know there's a still a shortage of people willing to do these jobs and like we have a moment That we have not had in in my entire generation to do everything we can to cement victories and to actually build organizational structure in this, you know, I don't know how long the so-called labor shortage is gonna last, but companies have not really figured out how to change their entire business model since the pandemic started and since people decided they don't want to do these jobs anymore. So let's let's take advantage of that now. And let's organize and build power now so that we can cement every single victory that they can't claw back from us.
2: So would you say this is one of the odd silver linings of the pandemic, that it's created a kind of disruption that gave an opening or an opportunity for folks like you to organize, whereas perhaps but for the pandemic, you might not even have engaged in this endeavor?
4: I mean... As somebody who got COVID, I hate saying that, but it's true. At least from my experience, I don't want to claim to speak for anybody else that I work with. But like I think it really exposed a fundamental reality that society is reliant on underpaid and abused workers to function. And early in the pandemic, that meant that people got hazard pay, people got expanded benefits, people were taken care of. For all of about three months, and then they told us to go to hell and deal with you know working during a pandemic and selling you know waterproof jackets while the world burns, and that reality is not lost on anybody who's working in this environment. And I think it also really, you know, like REI. The other thing about REI is they got rid of a lot of the things that made it a a great place to work. Um, we, you know, pre pandemic, there was, uh, something called a good faith agreement where you would have a uh, minimum hours in a given in, in any week. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So like you can literally have a week where you have zero hours and you're still technically employed there. Um, like people will have weeks where they went, you know, from working almost 40 hours to now you're working three, four hour shifts. That has not been as bad, luckily, because so many people quit. But there was a, there was a handful of weeks there um, that a lot of people had that experience. It's really hard to call things similar linings in the context, but it really is true that like without, without a pandemic, I don't think – I'm not going to say I don't think we would have won a union. Maybe we still could have. I, I don't know. But I don't know that we would have won with 86% support.
2: Right. When I say silver lining, I certainly don't mean that you know you should be happy that it happened. But sometimes, sure. sometimes a crisis can be turned into an opportunity. You know. So yeah. Anything else you want to add?
4: I mean, I would add that I hope that Soho isn't the last store to unionize, and I would encourage Greenvests, regardless of where you work, to uh, get in touch with our WDSU and like let's and join this fight because. The only way we're gonna win a real change and the culture change we want at the co-op, like we can get a contract done in, at Soho, but that's not gonna change. Like, there's 170 some odd stores. We need a culture change, and so if you feel inspired by what we've done, know that you can do it too. And like, you know, you can reach out to us if you want to just reach out to some of the Soho workers. Like, slide in our Instagram DMs at the uh, you know our REI Union Soho and and we'll, we'll try to set timing mean a lot of people do that some with spam, but also just with like questions or wanting support. So it might take a little while to get back to you, but like, please, please, please know that like, we are the first, yes, but like we really do not want to be the last. We want to see a real culture change at the co-op and we want to see growth and we want to like, you know, like Starbucks proof that it's possible for us to really, really surge and ramp up a campaign and have it be rooted in making our lives better.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: That was Stephen Buckley, a member of the REI Union Soho Organizing Committee, and now it is time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. The conversation about inflation and the cost of living crisis has been driving me absolutely bonkers for a couple of months now. And so this week, I was really happy to see a piece from Christine Berry at The Guardian titled, quote, Who's Profiting from the Cost of Living Crisis? Right now, it's Big Business Owners. That title doesn't really begin to explain the whole article, though. Most importantly, she makes it clear that what counts as a cost of living and what begets a crisis is a political choice. It's an article about Britain, for the most part, but the same story is broadly true in the U.S. Barry writes, quote, This crisis cannot be blamed solely on Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. The return of high inflation may be traceable to short-term supply shocks, but the things that turn it into a crisis have been decades in the making. In the 70s, stagflation, low growth coupled with high inflation, put an end to three decades of rising living standards. Now it comes on top of a lost decade. Real wages are no higher than in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. Millions of households were already struggling to make ends meet. It does not take much to tip them into the red, end quote. Because essential goods and services, food, housing, education, and in the US, healthcare, have been turned into private speculative assets rather than the necessities of life that should be available to all, she writes, quote, We have built an economy that systematically inflates costs for consumers while also driving down wages. End quote. But inflation seems to only matter when certain issues are at stake. The reality is that we've been in a cost of living crisis for decades. Berry continues, quote, when soaring housing costs are taken into account, living standards have been falling for most working age households since 2002. House prices have risen 20% since the start of the pandemic and are at a record high, both in absolute terms and relative to earnings. This leaves growing numbers of people trapped in the private rented sector, where about a third of their income is gobbled up by rent alone, end quote. So rents have already been rising faster than wages, as anyone who, well, rents and also works can tell you. So why is it that when wages finally creep up a tiny bit, everyone freaks out about inflation and starts talking about reenacting the Volcker shock? Barry writes, quote, the Bank of England governor Andrew Bailey recently warned against the threat of inflation caused by increasing wages. The boogeyman lurking behind the governor's intervention was the, quote, wage price spiral, whereby rising wages drive prices up further, leaving nobody better off. This plays into the idea, beloved by mainstream economists, that the interests of workers and consumers are essentially a seesaw for one to gain. The other must lose. But this conveniently ignores the third actor in the equation, the owners. In the UK today, owners are the one group who actually have the power to set both wages and prices. Indeed, they have been systematically handed that power by decades of deregulation and trade union decline, end quote. And of course, the thing that everyone forgets in all of these moments is that consumers are workers, for the most part, unless we're talking about the idle rich or the retired here. As no less an economic thinker than er Karl Marx pointed out, worker and consumer are not separate identities, but roles that we play. During the day, at our job, or perhaps during the night, if you work nights, you are the worker. But if you stop at the shop on the way home to buy the week's groceries, suddenly you are the consumer, or if you need to fill up your car at the gas pump. Sometimes, in fact, if you are, say, an Uber driver, you are filling up the car with gas In order to do your job, which makes you consuming in order to work. Hmm, weird how that works, right? Anyway, those high energy costs, BP and Shell, big oil companies, Barry notes, saw profits skyrocket to a combined $32 billion last year. Yes, billion with a B. And BP shareholders benefited from a $1.5 billion share buyback. Those shareholders are always the ones prioritized. Whether in a bankruptcy, where they are always put and get their payouts before workers, or when prices are being set, where their needs go before consumers. And as we just mentioned, workers and consumers remain the same damn people. Barry writes, quote, that even companies on the wrong end of rising input costs have significant power to decide who takes the hit. Do they pass it on to customers by hiking prices or to shareholders by squeezing margins? In the case of supermarkets, as the campaigner Jack Monroe has made clear, this effectively means power to decide whether the poorest families can afford to eat. The problem is that companies making these life or death decisions recognize no duty other than to maximize investors' returns, end quote. And here in the U.S., she noted, quote, where corporate power is even more concentrated than in the U.K., commentators warn that the real danger is not a wage price spiral, but a profit price spiral. U.S. corporate profit margins are at a 70-year high and have risen 37% in the last year alone. In one survey, more than half of retailers admitted to raising prices by more than their increase in costs, with larger firms most likely to be doing so. The narrative about inflation offers a convenient smokescreen for fattening margins, as investors brazenly admit. In the words of one asset manager, what we really want to find are companies with pricing power. In an inflationary environment, that's the gift that keeps on giving. End quote. And so, when you hear people talking about worries about inflation, and particularly when in- preening economists or econ writers pretend to know something you don't, trying to pit workers against consumers. We should probably ask why they're in such a rush to push worker-consumers back down and continue padding the pockets of the ultra-rich. And maybe, as Barry notes, privatization of the most important parts of our lives is an experiment that has failed.
2: My pick for ARG is Nora Delacour's article in Jacobin titled, Para-educators are critical to the classroom and they make poverty wages. So the educator who knows your kid best is very likely not their teacher paraeducators, or teaching assistants, are the educators who work alongside the student rather than at the front of the classroom. And due to their role as a supporting bridge between the teacher and the child, they play an incredibly important, yet often politically neglected and invisible role. LaCour, a high school social worker and herself a former teacher, writes about a paraeducator named Kimberly Thibodeau, whom she knows intimately because she worked with her. She writes, Quote, I was amazed at how she remembered everything. She knew our students' living situations, what their siblings were up to, who responded best to which sorts of encouragement, and who needed to be reminded to eat breakfast. Thibodeau told Jacobin why she loves her job. Quote, we have the ability to really get to know our students, and that allows the student to be more successful. Unquote. With their child centered view of teaching and learning, paraprofessional educators are able to anticipate and solve problems before they arise, LaCour writes, making it possible for students, particularly special education students, to meaningfully engage with the curriculum. Unquote. But for all their talent and seemingly magical ability to connect with both teachers and kids, Paraeducators are typically rewarded with poverty wages. They earn a median income of about $500 a week, according to the Economic Policy Institute, and in many cases end up working more than one job just to cover their basic needs. One paraeducator in Andover, Massachusetts, Holly Courier, quipped quote, There are essentially three unwritten qualifications for a job as a para. You can either Depend on a partner or parents who make more money than you, work another job, or go on government assistance, unquote. Some paraeducators suffer from housing instability or homelessness, or get overwhelmed with healthcare costs, and many end up leaving the profession because it's just not worth the struggle despite their love for what they do. Meanwhile, paraeducators keep getting asked to go above and beyond their job description when there are emergency or unmet needs in the classroom, especially during the pandemic era. Another Massachusetts-based paraeducator, Yajaira Rodriguez, talked about how she will be serving as a math teacher for the remainder of the year, but doesn't earn as much extra pay for this work as she would as a regular substitute teacher. Referring to the school administrators, she said, quote, they think that paraeducators are just the extra moms to help and make copies, but we're not. We're educators, unquote. LaCour writes, quote, those outside of K-12 education might not realize just how much instructional work is performed by a class of employees who lack the pay, job protections, and opportunities for advancement that licensed teachers count on, unquote. The history of paraeducators can be traced back to a time of austerity half a century ago. In the nation's public schools, as classrooms became more crowded, adding teaching assistants became a good way to offload some of the stress of teaching onto more personnel without actually employing more full time licensed teachers. The growing demand for paraeducators coincided with the civil rights movement and a growing desire in urban school districts to empower the community and parents in the education system. As LaCour explains, quote, in pursuit of a desegregated educator workforce and more community involvement in schools, grassroots activists demanded that anti-poverty funding be used to hire the mothers of local schoolchildren to fill these new roles, unquote. Paraeducators continue to play this dual role today. Labor historian Nick Jurevich, with whom I shared a grad school study group many years ago, points out that paraeducators are often seen as community conduits, serving as a liaison, helping families and the school system communicate and engage with each other. Most live in their school district, in contrast to the disproportionately white teachers that they work with, and they often speak the same language and reflect the demographics of the community. And one Minneapolis paraeducator, Tequila Laramie, who is on strike with her fellow educators right now, Recalled that, quote, growing up, I can't remember any teachers that looked like me. I wanted to be that teacher that not only looked like the students, but understood where they came from, that understood their culture, their language, that experienced the same things they do to show them that they can have any career they wish and to show them to love their brown skin. Those are the types of intangible lessons that are imparted in the everyday interactions that paraeducators have with their kids, drawing on the well of experiential wisdom that paraeducators bring to the classroom. It's wisdom that is all too easy for school authorities to undervalue, just as they tend to undervalue the kids in the communities they serve. I remember reporting on paraeducators a while back when schools were largely closed due to the pandemic, and how often the paras were tasked with being in the classroom with the kids, potentially exposing themselves to COVID, while teachers were allowed to use remote instruction. That was just one kind of emotional labor that is often taken for granted among frontline education staff, potentially at the expense of their health. Like childcare workers and preschool teachers, this mostly female workforce does women's work, and they're paid less because it's seen as something that comes quote-unquote naturally to them. That's why, as LaCour notes in her conclusion, many paraeducators are now organizing for fairer wages and safer, more equitable working conditions. Sometimes they're working within teachers' unions, but also they're forming their own unions too, because it's their voices that represent both the school and the community in a way that is both indispensable and misunderstood. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin Kilnborough and Natasha Lewis for making us sound good. You can get the full Belabored archive over at dissentmagazine.org. And if you want to support our independent journalism and our coverage of often undercovered labor issues, please consider leaving us a good review on your podcast platform of choice. And consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash belabored. And of course, we want to hear any feedback, questions, or comments you might have. We especially want to hear from you if you're a paraeducator or any other kind of educator on strike, or maybe... You're in the process of forming a union in the retail industry. Tell us how that's going. Maybe you're struggling with your coworkers to face down anti-union propaganda being churned out by your employer. Or maybe you're working from home right now and struggling with how to navigate in order from your boss to return to the office. We want to hear all about it, so you can catch us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks
1: life is hard so hard I must go hate
0: the not we can't you've been listening to descent magazine's belabored podcast for the entire archive of past episodes visit descentmagazine.org. join us online
1: using hashtag belabored